0: Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Research. I'm Professor Trish Ray, and this podcast is one in our series from the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. On today's episode, I'm speaking with finance and economics professor Randall Mork, who is a globally prominent, influential scholar and educator. His data-driven work applies sophisticated statistical analysis to important real-world economic problems. His research has been cited more than 40,000 times, and this gives him absolute credibility in his field. He's a sought after speaker at top research universities and a keynote speaker at conferences worldwide. The unifying theme throughout Randall's career is the economics of concentrated control, work immediately relevant to today's world. The University of Alberta awarded him the prestigious title of distinguished university Pref- professor and the National Bureau of Economics Research named him a research associate. This is truly an exceptional title for a Canadian scholar. It was, as in the past, it was reserved for only US university professors. Randall has written extensively on China's rise, and its Ministry of Education named him a Yangtze River Scholar, China's highest research award. Few economists anywhere so effectively marshal theory and data to provide such important insights. Randall, it's a pleasure to welcome you here today.
1: Thank you. It's it's great to be here.
0: Randall, I want to start by talking about an article you published in 1988, which is some time ago, in the Journal of Financial Economics with co-authors Andre Schlepper and Robert Vishny. The title is Management Ownership and Market Valuation and Empirical Analysis. This is what we really refer to as the classic article. The Journal of Financial Economics awarded it an all-star paper citations award and to date this article has been cited more than 10,000 times. The article is about the relationship between management ownership and market valuation of the firm. I'm interested in hearing more about this article, Randall. Can you tell us a bit about where the idea came from?
1: Well, sure. The article arises out of a a kind of an internal inconsistency in economics. Uh, If you take a, a course in introductory economics, you're taught that people Maximize their happiness and that firms maximize profits. And the reason that that's a bit inconsistent is that firms are run by people, they're called CEOs. And so maybe you would think that firms might be run to maximize the happiness of the CEOs. And so what this paper does is it looks at that hypothesis and puts it to the data and shows that, yes that's actually true. There's a lot of evidence in the data that firms are run to maximize the happiness of CEOs, not to maximize profits. Now, that's not saying CEOs are evil. Many of them are very nice people, Uh, but it's just that they are people, and so they behave like other people.
0: So, Randall, can you tell us how you got the idea for that?
1: Well, I was a, a PhD student arguing with a couple of other PhD students, uh, Andre Schleifer and Rob Vishny. Uh, they had uh, uh, noticed that most big US firms, uh, CEOs, owned little or no stock in the firms that they ran. And they thought that if the CEOs owned more shares in their firms, then the CEOs would run those firms to maximize profits and in economics that means run the firms more efficiently Uh, i was more familiar with canadian companies and in canada ceos often are major shareholders in their own firms and what we had observed in the canadian data was that that wasn't necessarily associated with more efficiency if the ceo is a dominant shareholder in the firm the ceo can Kind of maximize his or her own happiness, and the other shareholders can't do much about it. So we argued back and forth about whether CEOs earning more shares would be better or worse for how well firms would be run. And finally, we decided to go to the data. We put together a big uh, set of data on how much CEO. Uh, CEOs of different firms owned uh, shares in their own companies and uh, other other characteristics of those companies and of the CEOs and uh, what we found was that uh, wherever the CEOs own even a modest block of shares uh, we found less efficient uh, firm operation and so we thought that really does mean that there is an issue where if the CEOs become major shareholders, other shareholders can't criticize them and so CEOs can become uh, entrenched, impervious to criticism and able to run the firms to maximize their happiness. We did also find that where the CEOs own very few shares or no shares at all, having them own even a little bit more shares does correlate with more efficient operation of the firms. And so the implication there was that maybe where the CEOs own no shares at all, if you pay them in shares or stock options, it might improve efficiency. So we wrote that up and it was challenged uh, and uh, greeted with quite a lot of suspicion, but ultimately it was replicated many times and it, and it was accepted.
0: Can you explain a bit about the popularity of this paper over time, the ongoing importance of it?
1: Yeah, sure. It ended up helping to shape a new field called corporate governance. When we wrote the paper, there was no such thing. Um, And uh, it it led to a a bunch of different policy changes, along with much other work in in this area, uh, but one thing that it led to was the idea that you should pay CEOs in share grants and stock options, and I I think that was wildly overdone in the U.S. I, I was always a bit critical of that, but the, uh, the the finding that if you pay CEOs in shares and stock options uh, that 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 increases efficiency was embraced uh, with great enthusiasm by the CEO compensation. Uh, experts. Uh, and so there was this huge increase in paying in, paying CEOs in, in stock options, and with not really that big an obvious increase in corporate efficiency, but huge increases in inequality. So uh, uh, th- other things have been proposed that might also cause CEOs to run firms more efficiently. So so, uh, having more independent directors on the board, for instance, is one of the things. I originally was enthusiastic about that, but the data aren't really showing that that has much effect. CEOs do respond to activist investors. Um, So uh, there there is evidence in the data that activist investor pressure on CEOs can make firms uh, efficiency Uh, 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 increase, Uh, but there is the issue of sooner or later activists will emerge with their own agendas because after all, uh, activist shareholders are people too who will maximize their happiness rather than firm efficiency if they sort of think it through.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on in that paper and it seems that the research remains relevant to the world and the things we're going through now. Would you like to comment on that?
1: Well, yeah. Um, Corporate governance affects how firms are run. And that means it also affects how firms respond to government policies. So after the COVID crisis begins to abate, we're going to see governments all over the world trying to stimulate their economies. And one of the favorite ways they do that is with a monetary policy stimulus. What that means is that the central bank, the Bank of Canada would create a bunch of money and use that money to go out and buy bonds, intervene in in the bond market. Uh, That's called quantitative easing. And the idea of buying all these bonds is to increase bond prices, increase demand for bonds so that then corporations can issue bonds at lower interest rates. And if corporations can issue bonds at lower interest rates, then they'll issue more bonds and they'll invest in more new property, plant and equipment, and they'll hire more people, and that will stimulate the economy. The problem is that the CEOs who are running the firms may not kind of agree with all of that. The the chain of causation is mechanical up to the point where the Bank of Canada increases demand for bonds and that increases bond prices, which incidentally has the side effect of making bondholders wealthier and bondholders are rich people. So it's always good to make rich people richer if you come from certain parts of the political spectrum. But after that, what happens next depends on what the CEOs do. If the CEOs can issue bonds, uh, do they? Uh, And if they issue the bonds, do they sit on the cash or do they use it to buy property, plant and equipment and hire people? And the answer we've found in looking at monetary stimulus policies around the world is that when CEOs have reason to be fearful, when the business conditions surrounding them are uh, very uncertain, uh, they in fact will not use the opportunities that a monetary stimulus gives them to invest more and hire more people. They'll just sit on the money. And that kind of comes from the same logic that was developed in that original paper.
0: That's amazing. So, uh, Randall, you have a reputation over time for poking holes in mainstream economics. Would you like to comment on that?
1: Well, that, that has upset some people. And so I, I, there are a lot of mainstream economists who are unhappy with this whole direction. I do worry about the direction that economics is is taking. Uh, free, free market economics, first of all, has raised billions of people from poverty. If we think about the lives that our great-grandparents had, they weren't that different from the lives of uh, uh, very poor people in today's poorest countries. Free market economics has raised billions of people from poverty to the point where they can do podcasts and, and listen to podcasts, and that's a wonderful thing. So I think it, it, it's fair to say that free market economics is the least bad of all economic systems that have ever been tried, and that, that doesn't mean we can't try to make it better. Um, mainstream economics, I worry became too mathematical too early. We built a huge mathematical superstructure of uh, equations to, uh, uh, to, to to cover the entire field in the 1960s. And I worry that very dense mathematics narrowed our focus too much before the empirical facts uh, about the field were clarified. Um, We we, we developed, for instance, a very narrow conception of rationality uh, having to do with uh, calculus optimization, a very narrow definition of efficiency that very conveniently made lots of things out up to zero. Um, Behavioral economics, experimental economics, computational economics, all of these fields on the fringes of, of economics have been challenging the assumptions that underlie that mathematics with greater and greater credibility and so i think it's leading to a kind of a bifurcation we've got defenders of the mainstream who in many ways are just ignoring all of that and going on with the mathematical theory that was developed uh, some decades ago to govern the field and then other people who are um Uh, becoming increasingly annoyed with that focus. Um, I'm optimistic that a a broader uh, approach to economics will emerge that extends the mathematical superstructure across this broader idea about what rationality is and a broader idea about what efficiency is, you know, human behavior studies seem to suggest that we are rational but in deeper ways that arise out of evolutionary psychology what was it that kept our hunter-gatherer ancestors alive so that we could be their descendants and and watch podcasts Uh, and and that kind of behavior is rational in a sort of a deep way so the 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 field needs major renovation but i think it has good bones
0: i'm glad to hear your optimism (laughs) And as we come then toward the close of this podcast, I want to ask if you might share some advice or suggestions for students or other junior scholars who are just getting started with their research.
1: Yeah. Uh, Go go through your class notes very carefully. Uh, You you had to do that to memorize them for the exam, but that usually means you don't think about it very hard. You're just trying to remember everything. Think about it and, and look at the parts of what you were taught that make the least sense. Uh, And there's going to be lots of it, especially in economics, that really just doesn't make sense if you think about it. And then try to make sense of it. There are lots and lots of Nobel Prizes waiting in economics for people who do the renovation of the field. Uh, And so I think there's all kinds of ways that uh, young people can build careers by Repairing the field and rebuilding it. Uh, Like I said, it has very good bones, but it does need uh, a a Reno
0: I think that's great advice and I think it's good advice not only for students of economics uh, But also for students generally to remember that they can think themselves
1: (laughs) That's right no substitute for thinking
0: (laughs) Okay, thank you Randall If you'd like more information about Professor Randall Mork's research or other podcasts in our series, please visit the Alberta School of Business Research webpage. And now, to close this episode of Speaking with Research, I'll remind you that I'm Professor Trish Ray at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Thank you for listening.